Welcome to Blocked and Reported. I'm Katie Herzog, and joining me today, while my sidekick Jesse Single is off dousing himself with gasoline to protest against Netflix's password sharing fees, we have the great Mike Pesca. Mike is a veteran reporter and commentator, and I first got to know his voice long ago, many years ago, when he was the sports guy at NPR, and then later as the host of Slate's The Gist. Now, Mike hosted that show for many years, and then in 2021, he was famously pushed out of Slate over some absolutely infuriating bullshit that he might not want to revisit, but I'm going to make him talk about it today anyway. Uh, After he was pushed out of Slate, he took The Gist back and now produces it independently along with his newsletter, Pesca Profundities. Mike, welcome back to Blocked and Reported. Thank you, and I think we need to note that Jesse's self-immolation is clap, not clap, (laughs) assign, clap, (laughs) Mental clap, health clap, or it is, but the entire the mental health issues have nothing to do with his very brave statement on self-immolation and passwords. He is just doing better. That's right. He is. He's brave enough to do the thing that we all need to do in order to make absolutely no impact on the world except kill ourselves. Anyway, <laughs> I am. Do you know this? That Blockton reported is, I think, my favorite podcast. Really, more than the Fifth Column. I think so because, and I can prove it because I don't tell. Com- Kamel and all those guys, but um, I'm not actually a paid subscriber to the fifth column. <laughs> I am also not a paid subscriber to the fifth column because I resent that yeah. they are going to make me pay. I feel like I should, as a friend of the pod, I feel like I should have yes. a free subscription. I do listen to all of the previews and it yes. bothers the hell out of me that they always cut, Michael Moynihan always cuts them right when they're getting to the good shit. That's how you do it. And I started doing that it for uh, the subscriber part of the gist. But th- I have uh, so many shows. There are, there are Two ways to think about this if you have friends who have subscription services. One is you want to subscribe to help them. The second one is you want to subscribe because you like the co- the content. And Fifth Column right. is absolutely in that category. But then you've asked maybe in the past, like I've asked Sarah Heppola and Nancy Rommelman, hey, could you throw me a free subscription? Yeah. And they think they have, <laughs> but I don't have it. So I can't ask again because they know I'm not no. paying. But then the absolute worst thing is someone starts a Substack or or whatever, and you subscribe, and then you're just too afraid to ever yeah, cancel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can never call the herd if they know who you are. In that instance, the only thing to do is just to wait till your credit card runs out. That's, oh, or just cancel it. That's what you have to do. Yeah. What I do is I intentionally lose credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> just throw them out the window. I go on a fake b- buying spree in foreign <laughs> states, said that someone else did it. So it all works out yes. for me. All right, Mike. Well, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Uh, we've got some great stories today. You are going to guide me through some ongoing issues in education and the diversity industrial complex. We are also going to discuss, yes, Sandwichgate. I'm very excited to get your take on that one. But before we get there, do you want to give people the short version of what happened at, at Slate? We had you on the show after it happened, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. People might have forgotten what the hell happened. So an excellent reporter for the New York Times, uh, one of the best guy I've become friends with, Donald McNeil, is in Peru, Argentina, South America, and to Clara. I, we've, we've talked about this story about 50 times, so I know all the details. He was in Peru. He was in Peru. Uh, and at the end of every show, I make a reference to Peruvian turkey penises. That's this true. should be seared yeah. upon my mind. Anyway, mm-hmm. he says this uh, two-syllable word that is has become very verboten to say. He does it in the context of he's on a field trip with children that he was thrown into and that he... Perhaps foolishly agreed to go on, and he asked a 
clarifying question that I think needed to be asked to give uh, a girl some advice. This blows up a year later. The New York Times wants to punish or fire the guy or many people within the New York Times in an echo of a story we're going to talk about. And then this becomes a huge media kerfuffle in an echo of a story we're going to talk mm-hmm. about. And in the Slate Slack channel, of course, the, there is a, a channel called Media Discussion and This is where people talk about all things going on. And I would say the vast majority of Slate employees were saying essentially what Donald McNeil did was absolutely wrong. And I stupidly engaged. And the reason I engaged was I was always told this is what we're supposed to do. I've gotten content. I had gotten content from the show for engaging with my former colleagues at Slate, sort of uh, sharpening our arguments was always better, I thought, for both sides of the argument, spirit of inquiry, what Slate actually was when I started, would support such questions or pushback or intellectual um, get back and forth. So, you know, I gave my opinion in a very, I think, measured, tempered way that not only did I, of course, not use hard R, soft R, I didn't even write the N word, quote, the N dash word, because I had heard that that was triggering. More than heard, a (laughs) professor in Chicago was suspended for writing that because that could be triggering. (laughs) So I can't tell you how careful I was with the presentation of my argument, but essentially I got pushed out or it was decided that I could not continue with Slate because I made my argument, which was essentially that Donald McNeil should not have been pushed out at the New York Times. That's that's the long of it. And the longer of it is what I went through for, you know, over a year and getting my show back and having my professional reputation. It still is incredibly damaged. And it's pretty interesting because I could live in a world where I say to myself, oh yeah, everyone I know knows what happens and what happened. And the main New York Times article about it, in an echo of what we're going to talk about, the media reporting on the media, they were pretty accurate. I was very happy with, uh, Ben Smith's coverage of the story. But, you know, you do a Google search on me and like five of the 10 articles are about this. And I can't tell you how many times I get some sort of professional opportunity and then it gets pulled away like (sighs) a day later, usually 24 to 36 hours later. And it's got to be because of Googling. Yeah. And you, I mean, just to emphasize here, all of this happens. You did not say the word. You didn't type the word. Oh, no. A word that has no. this word. I at when at the time this happened, I ch- I typed it into my browser and I checked it in the pages of Slate.com. It appeared over and over and over. And the- my entire argument was a journalist's job is to describe the world. And sometimes when you're conveying an actual quote, which is things I've done in my career, because it was always allowed uh, with editorial approval at the places I worked, you have to say actual quotes or else everyone right. is confused about what actually happened. Right. You owe it to the readers who aren't 12-year-olds, except sometimes they are. Yeah. And it's, it's and, and to do otherwise is to treat people as though they are fragile, as though they cannot handle reading this fucking word. The whole thing was absolutely <laughs> maddening. In an echo of what we will talk about today, yes. uh, I found out yes. that people, even people in media, are fragile, or at least yes. pretend to be to get outcomes that they desire. They yeah. How much of this do you think was about your argument, and how much do you think it was about you? Like, do you think that if somebody else at Slate had made this argument? that person would have ended up losing their job and essentially being canceled. I know that if a black staffer at Slate had made this argument, they'd be fine. And in fact, the official decree afterwards was something like we're going to have two different standards or 
uh, <laughs> shifting standards depending on who is writing or saying the word. Can is... mixed race people, are they allowed to say it or is it, is it the one drop rule? <laughs> I guess they're soft A only. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what they, yeah. They're, they're N word, but with an M dash instead of, I don't know. So, and it also depends, like definitely not mixed race, you know, Filipina and white. No, no, no. Not no. Latinx. No. So I think that it all comes into play and it's all about power and psychology and the fact that I was, you know, it's people were literally saying that in internal discussions. Look how much money he makes. He's, you know, the longest tenured white male, things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it has to do with me. It has to do with the fact that my opinions were definitely not truculent and didn't go off, didn't um, tweak people unnecessarily. I had a segment on the gist called Mike Debate Slate. And when that started, that was celebrated by my editors who, the editors who hired me and my first couple editors were great. The last one, I think, bungled things um, as history shows. But yeah, that spirit of debate and inquiry was celebrated until it very much wasn't. And a moment came where there were certainly some people who were maneuvering to do what they always wanted to do. And then there were some people who were overtaken by what was happening um, post-George Floyd. And there was an entire confluence of, you know, me being here talking to you on Peachfish Productions microphone instead of Slate's microphone. All right. So the reason, Mike, the reason I asked you about this isn't just because I enjoy making people revisit re their trauma, although I do specifically, <laughs> Jesse. But I'm curious if you think that if this had happened now in 2024 rather than in 2021, do you think the outcome would have been the same? And the reason I ask that is because more broadly, I wonder if you think the great awakening, as we'll call it, uh, is on the wane. Okay, second part, a bit, you know, I definitely think so. Shane Gillis did host Saturday Night Live after being fired from Saturday Night Live. That is not just a data point, but that proves my point. <laughs> but, yeah, and there are many, many other examples, and people always say, wow, can you imagine if this was said in 2020? It mm -hmm. was, I do think back then, we were like um, a, an ecosystem or a body that hadn't been exposed to this particular pathogen, so we had no immunity from it. Um, so eventually maybe some sensible ones among us built up immunity, but there are a lot of other cross cur currents. One of the things is media has been so decimated that the, the leeway to indulge in really, uh, stupid and stupid actions, not in the actual media organization's self-interest that has gone away as staff has been cut to the bone and going in for nonsense. They don't have a lot of, uh, they, they just can't, you know, indulge the nonsense. But I also think, so, I, and I think then we're going to talk about this. I think the New York Times has consciously reformed and they're not just a leader. They're like one of three news org or five news organizations in America that matter. But I think in certain places, and maybe, I don't know what Slate's like now, but certain places that roughly replicate what was going on at Slate then, this absolutely would happen and the heretics would be pushed from the midst of the organization. I think a lot of NGOs are like that and are still like that. And then there's, there's also randomness to it. You know, so in 2020, 2021, you could be sure that any transgression would be punished. Now it's, uh, there are other factors like how powerful the person is, how well the organization is doing. So yeah, I really, I, I don't think I'd have survived if that was the not just societal dynamic, but if that was the dynamic of the people who are working there. I mean, randomness, that's a really good point. I haven't really thought about this, but what else is happening in the news cycle that, that week probably has a pretty significant impact on, in some ways, whether someone or not, whether someone actually ends up keeping their job or not, someone in the middle of one of these um, right. pylons. Um, 
Okay, so one of the things I, I really like about you is that you are able, or I admire this about you, you are able to maintain friendships across party lines. You have some of the absolute worst friends in the world. Like <laughs> Adam Davidson, he's a friend of yours. And you're very into bringing people together for constructive debates. And as an attempt to do that publicly, after you took the gist back, uh, you started another show called Not Even Mad, which brought together a liberal or conservative and you a centrist to talk about the issues of the day. I really enjoyed this show, but it didn't last long. So what happened there? In a sentence, uh, the people involved got mad. <laughs> <laughs> they were even so mad. <laughs> they even got mad. Virginia Heffernan, who's uh, very much of the left and just someone I personally am extremely fond of and I love talking to her. This is, this and, is what I'm talking about when I yeah. say that you are able to maintain friendships with the worst people in the world. Our listeners will probably remember her from the column that she wrote about how she wasn't sure she should... She, she moved to rural America during COVID and her Trump supporting neighbor plowed her driveway. To be fair, it was like I think Vermont, Vermont or yeah. someplace very much northeast. So yeah. her Trump her Trump supporting neighbor, uh I I don't know how she knew this person was a Trump supporter, plowed her driveway and she wrote a column mm -hmm. for the LA Times about whether or not she should thank him. <laughs> and you're friends with her. Sure. But then again, I never had to plow her driveway, so. <laughs> yeah, I am friends with her. She's actually, a, a, I would say, a very good person, unlike uh, unlike some other people who I've maintained cordial relations with. Jesse. And then, <laughs> she doesn't date horses. I mean, she just has, the, the cut of her jib is superior to um Yeah, Virginia's great, and I like talking to her. And sometimes when people have, you know, people do have these impulses, and uh, they make decisions that... I often disagree with, but the fact that she puts it in the LA Times, it made right. for interesting fodder. And then, of oh, course, she did. Gets, yeah, she it gets totally death did. threats because uh, Tucker Carlson turns it into a story, and right. that's not fair. But I have to tell you, some other people who we approached before I asked Jamie Kerchak to be the quote unquote conservative, he's a bit to the right, but not very. Some other, you know, more died in the world conservative said, I can't work with Virginia because of that article. Uh, See, to I'm me, not surprised. Yeah. To me, personal integrity is extremely important. It's the way to get through this. And I wouldn't say all of the people that you mentioned as being terrible people who I'm friends with have <laughs> exemplified that as much as uh, Virginia has. So I really, that's so important. And also, she's like, she likes disagreeing with me or with other people. And she's also not so doctrinaire that you always know what she's going to say. And if you say something to her, and there are many people like this, and it's just a good point, or at least a point she fi finds interesting, she really values what's interesting. And that's a shared value that we have. So I think we'll always be able to talk about things. Well, I mean, and to her credit, unlike some people, she didn't drop you uh, when you were in the, in the middle of the shitstorm, which uh, as much as I think right. that column was fucking stupid and she should just thank people who, who plow your driveway no matter who they voted for, uh, the fact that she um, at least has some loyalty there is does does show some good character on her part. And the fact that she was willing to do her show. Well, I know, I, I know, Katie, in a similar situation, you've essentially volunteered to give uh, ho hospice <laughs> care to your racist neighbor. I mean, you've gone above and beyond. You've not only plowed his driveway, you've repaved it for him. I mean, come on. I would be clipping his toenails <laughs> while uh, while plowing his driveway, yes. Um, okay, so you, you Jamie Kerch Kerchick, and Virginia start this show. 
And then they got mad. Can you give us the specifics? I can't, but I can say that here's the dynamic. (laughs) There's a lot of push and pull between the people engaged in this. And so some considerations are, I would say if the show came out of the gate and was number two in Apple, and it looks like we were all going to make hundreds of thousands, it would probably be going on right now. But of course, it's going to be a slog. You have to enjoy the process. And one of the things that makes the process less than enjoyable is the feedback, the social feedback that one gets among their own social circles. So there are pressures. Why are you talking to that person? How come you let them go on so long? And and it just, if the other factors of the enjoyment of the process, the remuneration from the process don't outweigh that and it takes up your time, uh, people maybe are prone to say, well, why am I doing this? It's more negative than positive. So because we're, you know, social creatures and we can get, um, we can get pushed off a principle if it's, you know, just going to cost us a lot of our standing among our group. So basically her friends or readers got mad that she was doing this. I, You know, I don't know if Jamie's did also, and I'm definitely not just uh, blaming Virginia on this, but yeah, I would also say that it's my fault because I was in charge of uh, making the show a success and it started off as a potential success, but it wasn't enough of a success to overcome all of all of the issues that came up. You know what you should have done? You should have done an HR, an orientation with some icebreakers. <laughs> we should have done trust falls. Trust falls, yes. I also, I also think there's something. So one of my theories about the show is there's a need for this in the marketplace. People disagreeing. Every podcast. I mean, I, obviously your podcast is great in which you disagree with Jesse, but more on a very deeply moral basis. You know. You, yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with Jesse because I don't like him. I actually agree with him on the issues. Right. It's, it's different. Very frustrating for you it must yeah it's like the oh, such a such an imperfect messenger for these clarion clarion cries of reason no but even on issues like when you were talking about um after i forgot was it um who was who was the author who was invited to the 92nd street y and this person had expressed real i guess anti-israel or anti-semitic oh, yeah. sentiments and there was a yeah. real disagreement like h- how much you each valued free speech in the first amendment and so forth and you know you calling him a jew and all that stuff but he is a jew <laughs> yes he's he's given you know just um height he's like almost a jew and a half but <laughs> but i like that i love disagreements so my theory was there is a need in the marketplace for that sort of podcast and i think that the reason there is not that sort of uh, podcast in the marketplace has something to do with the dynamic of podcasting. It's very intimate. These people are your friends. You hang out with them. And so maybe people really don't want to hear fundamental disagreements or disagreements between people who they sense aren't really friends in real life. I don't know. There are a couple counterexamples to this. I do think the podcast, this is going to sound weird. When, when I started, I kept saying left, right, and center. That's very. That's a very dry, uninteresting podcast. It's gotten a lot better. And part of it is that I think Sarah Isger, who's from the right, is the best right-wing person or, you know, conservative person they've had in a long, long time. And I do like the interplay among them, but almost all the podcasts are three guys, often guys agreeing with each other. And there might be a reason for that, a a psychological reason that podcasting uh, adheres to that format rather than what I was trying to do. Yeah, the relationship. I mean, okay, so on the media, when Brooke Gladstone, and just as an example of a show where the two hosts disagreed. I thought that when when mm-hmm. Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield were at, were on the show and they would get in these heated debates, I thought that's when it was best. 
Of course, oh, yeah. it turns out that they hated each other. <laughs> they were like mortal enemies off the show. I mean, you you know that that show could not be called not even right, that. right. <laughs> um, but in, but in that dynamic, I mean, I think people, I think outsiders who sort of are like casual listeners might have had the impression that they had sort of a I don't know a a, a siblingly relationship where mm. they sort of like love each other but sort of hate each other. I did not get that impression from listening to the show, especially in the later years. The impression I got from that show is that oh, these people. They hate each other. They really do. And I, I thought it made for a really interesting dynamic. But of course, they hated each other so much that one of them pushed the other one out of the out of the show. So, in a less uh, political or fraught realm, there's a podcast with Rachel Cayley and Robbie Hoffman called Too Far. And I don't know that they actually get along. And Robbie Hoffman's this unbelievably compelling figure, and she's really mean to Rach, Rachel all the time. In fact, she calls her Rachy Times, and if she didn't, <laughs> I think the whole show wouldn't work because that yeah. little frisson of familiarity brings us back. But they've even played episodes that just got too mean. Love that show. That show is extremely interesting. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Brooke Gladstone, was, I would say she's my mentor in media, and Bob Garfield is you know, was one of my best friends. But your analysis, I think, is correct. And I'll say this, and I'm sure, I don't know if they'll listen. I'm sure their producer, Kat, who is a good friend of mine, listens to this uh, through clenched teeth. (laughs) The show was better when Bob was there to provide pushback. And it's not as if, not just on the air, it's not as if Bob's pushback was always productive. That's not how pushback works. Right. It is just better when when the train isn't always hurtling in one direction. It's great to have, you know, rivulets and side streams and the idea that maybe we should take a left or a right or not go so down the road in the same way where we're all agreeing with us. I just think editorially, maybe Bob was not the right person to do that, but that role is really important in keeping a show, for me, how the show would work and to be Mm -hmm. the most dynamic. I don't know. I don't know how their audience figures are. Maybe the people who still listen every single week love what the show's become, which is, yeah, mostly an affirmation of the very progressive worldview. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are some examples of, of, I think, shows that that do disagreement well, uh, Rising, you know, Robbie Suave and Brianna Joy Gray. To you know, he's a libertarian, right, which is not you know denying war crimes right. or whatever. But he, I think he does a pretty good job of pushing back on her, and 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 on occasion when Robbie does actually lose his shit, uh, it is very entertaining. It's but it is a hard yeah. balance, you know. The View, I watch The View every once in a while when Meghan McCain <laughs> was on The View, and yeah. sometimes it was painful to watch because the co-host clearly hated this woman and they made it they made it very obvious and so i would find myself just like cringing watching there are many excellent bbc shows that do this in fact the entire ethic of the bbc and question time is about this yeah i think english politics and just maybe british culture allows for this a lot more so if you want to find it now on the downside, they're ca- talking about, you know, the by-elections in a riding you've never heard of. So right. who cares right. about that? What are the stakes? You'd like it to happen in America. We're just, we just aren't that pluralistic a country and we're very bad at communicating with each other. And we just aren't friendly with each other if we have different politics. And that's really important. Okay. Before we get to the main segment, I want you, I want to get you to weigh in on one more thing. Uh, so this has been the talk of Twitter this week. Former New York Times opinion section editor 
editor, Adam Rubenstein. He published a piece in The Atlantic about his experience working at The New York Times. It was called I Was a Heretic at The New York Times. And Rubenstein, he was one of the casualties of Tom Cottongate at The Times. I won't rehash the details there. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but in 2020, there was an outcry at the New York Times over a publication of a, of a column by Senator Tom Cotton calling for the National Guard to go into cities where riots were taking place. After that huge outcry within the paper, opinion editor James Bennett, he was famously pushed out. And then less famous was what happened to Adam Rubenstein, who was the editor tasked with line editing and fact-checking the piece. So he was a junior editor there. So we should probably start our discussion with the opening paragraphs. This, what I'm about to read you, led to an incredibly stupid multi-day meltdown on Twitter. Here's what Adam wrote. On one of my first days at the New York Times, I went to an orientation with more than a dozen other new hires. We had to do an icebreaker, pick a starburst out of a jar, and then answer a question. My starburst was pink, I believe, and so I had to answer the pink prompt, which had me respond with my favorite sandwich. Russ and Daughter's Super Heapster came to mind, but I figured mentioning a $19 sandwich wasn't a great way to win new friends. So I blurted out the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A and considered the ice broken. The HR representative leading the orientation chided me. We don't do that here. They hate gay people. People started snapping their fingers in acclamation. I hadn't been thinking about the fact that Chick-fil-A was transgressive in liberal circles for its chairman's opposition to gay marriage. Not the politics, the chicken, I quickly said, but it was too late. I sat down ashamed. So, Mike, what did you think of this passage? Did you find this plausible? I mean, more than plausible. I yes. was I was in I was in almost identical there. circumstances. Yeah. yeah. This is def it's definitely true that Chick-fil-A was verboten. It was hate crime sandwich. Yes. It was. Um, and the New York Times, if you need proof of this, the New York Times wrote about this, as they did as well, the fact that snap they had a piece from 2015 entitled something like Snapping is the New Clapping. <laughs> yes. Of course this ha I didn't even think that anyone would gainsay the snappingness of it or the fact that HR would castigate someone for claiming that they liked uh, Chick-fil-A. I knew not to say anything positive about Chick-fil-A in my workplace at that time. Uh, in fact, I probably, I don't know, do you, do you, eat, do you eat a Chick-fil-A to this day? I would. I mean, I haven't because there's yeah. better options, but I don't have any, I, I'm sort of, I feel like eating Chick-fil-A would be, yes, sort of transgressive in a fun way at this point. Um, but I, I will say <laughs> I was for years, I was, of course, one of the people that you might find outside of a Chick-fil-A protest. I mean, not literally because that would involve like going to the suburbs, yeah. um, but, but yes, I would not have, on principle, I would not have eaten at Chick-fil-A for many years of my life. I don't think you'd have been wrong to do that. They've reformed a bit. They've at least made what you want what you want corporations to do is to hear and then to try to uh not not become born again Christians or open on a Sunday, but they've done some uh I guess the necessary work, isn't that what we call it? Well, th I mean, that's the hilarious thing is that last year there was this controversy because Chick-fil-A, they hired like a diversity coordinator or something like that and conservatives started protesting that. So is that someone who's going to um, introduce pork sandwiches and burgers? <laughs> is that the diversity officer at chick fil -A? Dark meat. They're going to introduce yeah. dark meat. I personally don't eat a Chick-fil-A because they're right across in the Barclay Center in Brooklyn. That's creating a horrible choke point uh, mm -hmm. when all the delivery drivers congregate there. So I'm against them. But yes, it's more than plausible. There is no reason to think it didn't happen except for... Hannah Nicole Jones, sorry, I said that wrong, <laughs> in, in tribute to you, and I never get it wrong. There's no reason to think it didn't happen except that Nicole Hannah Jones tweets 
didn't happen. So therefore, I mean, and she was there and Adam wasn't. So I guess she's right. She attends all of the, the new or the new higher orientations at, at the New York Times. So yeah, a lot well, of she people- has the, she has Snapdar when more than five people <laughs> snap. She immediately knows what's going on. Because it's cultural appropriation of white people are doing it. Although I guess, you know, I think this really started with the beatniks. Uh, so yeah, a lot, I found this totally believable. I was surprised that anybody didn't find this believable because I spent, again, years in circles where a Chick-fil-A opening was considered a protest worthy event and not because they tortured, they sell torture chickens, but because of the, the owner's stance on, on gay marriage. But from the responses on Twitter, you would have thought that Adam claimed that on his first day of work, the HR rep made him brand his own forehead with his he him pronouns. Like people <laughs> found this totally unbelievable. I'm not sure what part exactly, if it was the snapping or the denigrating of Chick-fil-A or the, the fact that the setting was the New York Times rather than an Occupy Wall Street meetup. But people didn't believe this. Michael Hobbs, of course. Naturally, he was a Chick-fil-A truther. He tweeted something like, I don't have the exact tweet because, of course, he blocked me, but it was something like, is anyone going to contact the Atlantic to verify this? <laughs> and one brave soul, Spartacus, yes. the Spartacus single right. over there said. Right. So I, I will do it. And that was Jesse. So he reached out to the Atlantic to ask if the piece and that specific passage had been fact-checked. And surprise, surprise, it was. Mm-hmm. Plus, people who Adam had told about this event at the New York Times, people like Barry Weiss and others confirmed that they'd heard about this at the time. Now, that isn't totally 100% dispositive, but it's pretty good evidence that this did in fact happen the way that Adam said that it did. Plus, I just, I really do not think the Atlantic would have included this anecdote if there were even the slightest possibility that it was faked because it was very clear. It should have been clear to the editors that this was going to become a thing because it's hilarious. Yeah. And plus, the New York Times would have, if this wasn't true, do you, I, I think the New York Times would have already disputed this if they had any reason to, but they have said nothing about this. Right. And so to me, the thing that is so galling about the people who claim that this was obviously fake is that you know a good portion of them would have been snapping along had they been at that meeting or at the very least doing jazz hands. You ever, you ever write for or been fact-checked by The Atlantic specifically? I have never been fact-checked. I've only written like a personal essay for The Atlantic, a short one that was not fact-checked. And they fact-checked it with you saying, did this happen? Yes. Did right. this happen? Right. Yes. Uh, I've been fact-checked, not for writing, but for being in an Atlantic piece. And they're thorough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say to answer the Hobbesian question, has anyone fact-checked this? Yes, it has. Also, if you really break down the components, there's nothing in there right. that a dedicated social activist would find not only wrong, but they probably Good. congratulate yes. themselves. Yes, this was, in their way of thinking, a call in. He wasn't yelled at. The HR person, as described, I guess ever so gently, quote unquote, corrected him. Snapping is not seen as cackling or hectoring, right? It's just a way of saying, I agree, but- al- It's affirmation. Yes, yeah. but also saying, you know, we have us, we're, we're sitting on stolen land at the same time or implying yes. it. <laughs> so everything about it is totally plausible. Nothing about the people who said didn't happen um, is plausible. But, and maybe we'll get to more of the um, meat of the essay, not the meat of the sandwich. Yeah, I don't, I'm not- alleging a conspiracy that the people who focused on chicken gate were trying to distract attention, but the main crimes were not chicken related crimes in here. It's that 
the New York Times, in doing the self-reporting on this incident, assigned a reporter who publicly castigated Adam for doing his job. And it's that the Washington Post totally irresponsibly characterized Adam as shrugging off corrections, which never happened. So no attention or almost no attention based on that. That's the didn't happen, shrugged, that he shrugged off corrections. Please give me a didn't happen quote on that as opposed to some chicken thing. Yeah, there are um, there are much more important passages of this of this piece. Let's, let's get to a few. Uh, the one that you were just talking about. All right, so Adam writes, Cotton's office had emailed me several photos that they wanted to see published alongside the op-ed, showing times when the same legal doctrine had been invoked in the past. One was of U.S. troops enforcing the desegregation of the University of Mississippi in 1962. I sent these to a photo editor, Jeffrey Hinson Scales, and asked him to consider them. He wrote me back to say, quote, a false equivalence, but historical images are there now, meaning he'd added them to the story to the story file in the system. I thanked him and added a confusion emoji in case he wanted to expand on what he meant. He replied by sending me the emoji of a black box representing solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And this comes up again later. So news reporters at the Times ended up covering this for the Times. We found out from the James Bennett tell-all that was published in The Economist at the end of last year. We did a premio, a premio episode on that one. That one of the reporters on that story, the story that The Times published, was at the same time helping organize the union response to the op-ed. So there's an obvious conflict there. So in this Atlantic piece, Adam writes that that New York Times report about this conflict, quote, devoted five paragraphs to my interaction with the photo editor who had, against company policy, shared with the reporter some of our Slack messages. And then he's quoting here from the Times. Mr. Scales, so that's the photo editor, raised an objection. A false equivalence, but historical images are there now, he wrote to Mr. Rubenstein on Slack, the internal internal messaging software used by Times employees. Quote, yeah, there are a few in there, Mr. Rubenstein responded. So that piece that was published by the New York Times made it look as though Adam was saying that there are false equivalencies in Tom Cotton's actual article. Now, I got to tell you, I didn't buy that. I read what the New York Times wrote and I was like, no, I don't think a reasonable reader would say that when Adam responded, yeah, there are a few in there to the phrase, a false equivalence, but historical images are there now. And I, I didn't think a reasonable reader would come away saying that, yeah, that he was acknowledging that it is a false equivalence. However... <laughs> I don't know if the Washington Post readers are reasonable, but you want to take it from there? I actually, I kind of disagree with you on that. I mean, the Times piece does not actually spell out that Adam's talking about a few photos being in there, being in the file, rather than a few false equivalencies being in the article. I mean, I am sure that you have better reading comprehension than I do. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can debate that among themselves. But regardless, yes, the Washington Post picks this up. And they describe this as Adam having, quote, shrugged off accuracy issues. That's crazy. That goes That's crazy. That goes exactly to his character, his professionalism. I mean, if that phrase is true, he should be fired, right? If you shrug yes. off, if your job is the op-ed editor, an editor of this extremely controversial, fairly or not, and I think a little bit fairly, uh, I think very much fairly, op-ed, and if you shrug off accuracy issues, what else are we talking about? So the 
But the point is, and Adam convinces me here, he wasn't saying there are a few in there about about false equivalents. He was saying it about the pictures. There are a few photos in the file. That's what he's saying. It's that is un that is unbelievable to me, and it's infuriating. I was actually more incensed with this than the James Bennett piece because to me Bennett was about the interplay among the higher ups, and Adam was more the uh, foot soldier who was taking incoming. And then when the New York Times tried to describe fairly without fear or favor what he did, they got it all wrong and really hurt his career and I think was a calumny against him. Yeah. So I recommend reading this piece and also reading the James Bennett column in The Economist. And those together give you a really full portrait of what exactly happened at The New York Times during this period. And like for one thing, I didn't realize this until I read, read Adam's piece. So he writes that after they published the the opinion, the, the Tom Cotton opinion column, a someone created a, a, a channel on Slack to discuss this, and he writes: "In a matter of hours, more than fifteen hundred employees joined it, and there were thousands of messages plotting next steps and calling for a retraction and editor's notes firings. Fifteen hundred employees, and so if to be Adam, to be the junior editor at the heart of this, must have just been an absolutely fucking terrifying experience." Yeah, when James Bennett was fired or asked to resign. Um, Sulzberger, the publisher of the Times, asked for his head on Slack. Megan Lotit, who is now a deputy editor in the newsroom, wrote, James's resignation makes me somewhat hopeful. And she added that the firing was a first step. And as Adam writes, a first step to what? And what I think it was is the first step to creating a situation that needed to be corrected. Because when you had, and we haven't mentioned this, but people will remember, um, New York Times employees went to Twitter, screenshotted the op-ed, because of course couldn't link to it, that would be a horror, and wrote, and so many of them wrote, running this puts black New York Times staff in danger. Uh, It was later explained that the union advised them to say that because it it would be un- not actionable if you phrased it as a question of safety. It, to me, this is so embarrassing. And there are people who are, who's, if you look for that phrase, tweeted that sentiment, who I love, who I love as New York Times writers, in some cases, who I very much like as people, whose work I couldn't respect more. And this is a shameful position. It's not as if the op-ed was advocating eugenics or telling us that the election really was stolen. It was, I think, a fairly right-wing prescription for an actual situation, but it's why op-eds and it's why discussion exists. And the entire incident, I think, was one of the causes why the New York Times has pulled back where Sulzberger, without ever apologizing or acknowledging, and I guess he can't because of monetary considerations, without ever extending an olive branch to Bennett or to Adam, Sulzberger realized that things had gone way too far. Yeah. And I think the New York Times of today and the op-ed page of today would never have allowed this slack-induced kerfuffle to have occurred. No, I think you're right. This was probably uh, the low point. And I think the call, I think the, the opinion section has actually improved since Bennett left, which I was surprised to see because this seemed like a victory for people who are sort of natural censors. But I think the, call, the, the section has actually gotten more diverse. John McWhorter has a column there. David French has a column there now. Um, I find the columns there more interesting and certainly more heterodox than, than under Bennett's rules. So maybe this, maybe this was actually a good thing, but just the process to get there. I mean, like, 
Adam writes, here's another quote, a see something, say something rule was affirmed and a Slack channel called op sensitivity was created in which editors were encouraged to raise concerns about one another's stories. I cannot imagine working in yeah. that environment, although I sort of did work in that environment. <laughs> and so did you. <laughs> I can. <laughs> yeah, I think that the benefit of Adam Rubenstein's story is that there are a couple of things that are inherently subjective, like our black New York Times staffers in danger. I would say no, but can I prove it? And well, I mean, you can actually prove it because Nas the National Guard did go into various cities. I have heard zero reports of, of New York Times staffers, black or otherwise. Yeah. Being harmed well, by that. That's, that's a good point. Uh, I don't know if they're... <laughs> it's, it literally happened. Yeah, I don't know if their marching orders were to uh, check uh, press passes and melatonin levels and then <laughs> back off or proceed a fourth. But anyway, my point is that was subjective. And another subjective thing was just, is this op-ed out of bounds into a certain very, very progressive person, even though it's a US, U.S. senator advocating a policy position that was followed in certain ways, not entirely because the National Guard has to be triggered by the request of a governor and Cotton was working around that. But that perhaps is subjective. Like, is this so out of bounds? We should not have ever given it the space. The things that aren't subjective that are documented here are the Washington Post getting it wrong and the staffers assigned to the story publicly proclaiming that I think the subject of my story is already guilty. And the sentiment from inside the New York Times, which haven't been, you know, didn't happen on Twitter. That's all really valuable. And it paints a picture of a place that ran amok. And I do think, I agree with you, the op-ed page has gotten more diverse. And a phrase that comes to mind, do you know what sentinel chickens are? Is it is that a spicy chicken sandwich? No, I wanted to bring it back to chickens. When <laughs> there was uh, the avian flu outbreak, they one method of seeing if uh, the avian flu was uh, sweeping through is you lock some chickens in a box. And if those chickens died, they would tell you <laughs> avi avian flu's here. So they were the sentinel chickens. And I think Adam Rubenstein uh -huh. and James Bennett were the sentinel chickens uh, for this <laughs> New York Times correction. <laughs> well, Adam did end up leaving. Uh, he writes that it was clear he had no future there. And I was also, the, the one thing I didn't like about this piece was that, that it turned out that uh, this all happened when Adam was in his like mid twenties. He writes that all of this happened in the first five years of his career. He had he landed at the New York Times within five years of being in his career. <laughs> Cancel him. Cancel him for that. That makes me unsafe as a white New yes. York Times reader. <laughs> all right, let's take a quick ad break for our free listeners and housekeeping. Katie, life is so busy these days that it's easy to get distracted and, and lose sight of what matters. Uh, video games, podcasts, social media. But there are more important things like free speech because we couldn't even have video games and podcasts and social media without free speech. I mean, yeah, free speech is definitely one of my top 50 favorite rights. I mean, but sometimes I worry, who's looking out for our free speech rights? Fire is, that's who. Because there's a new sheriff in town. Or not a new sheriff, but the same sheriff, except he got a promotion to chief sheriff and he's wearing a new uniform. Okay, okay, we got it, we got it, we got it, we got it. The point is people should check out FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Yeah, you might know FIRE as a campus organization, but now there's so much more. They're not just focused on education anymore. They're now defending your free speech and individual liberties. Yes, Jesse, including you. Even me? 
Even you. Yes, Fire's mission is to defend and sustain the individual rights of all Americans, even Jesse's, to free speech and free thought. Fire educates Americans about the importance of these inalienable rights, promotes a culture of respect for these rights, and provides a means to preserve them. The freedom to express yourself is priceless. I don't know about priceless. Okay, I'm willing to negotiate. Mm, Okay, Katie, I will sell you my right to self-expression for $75.75. Okay, let's talk about this after the ad. Uh, As I was saying before Jesse interrupted me, your freedom to express yourself is priceless, but it's under threat. Joining the movement to protect that expression is only $25, and you can do that at thefire.org slash blocked. Those who donate $25 or more gain access to insider perks like a personalized membership and invitations to fire events and conferences and a one-year subscription to Fire Quarterly Magazine. The events are awesome. They're, they're really, really fun. Join this very important movement, not just for the events, at thefire.org slash blocked. That's thefire.org slash blocked. We are a podcast. Did you know that, Mike? We're a podcast? I like when you say that. You're announcing your your um, pronoun, aren't you? It's we. We. Yes, that is yeah. our pronoun. That is our land right. acknowledgement. Uh, we are a podcast on uh, unceded Cherokee te- territory, I believe. Well, it, the homeland claimed to have Cherokee heritage. It turned out that it was born <laughs> near Albany. I did read that uh, that great New Yorker piece uh, this week. Uh, you can reach out to us at Blocked and Reported Podcast at gmail.com. Please send us story tips there. Any criticism for Jesse, you can also send there as well. Uh, we also have a subreddit. You can find that at blockedandreported.reddit.com, I believe. I'm not checking it. I think that's right. And most importantly, if you want to support the show, go to blockedandreported.org and sign up to become a premium subscriber, a preemie, and you will get three extra episodes of this podcast every month, at least free. I think we did three extra bonus episodes this month. So sometimes we'll get yeah. even more than that. It's been so much did content. You, so much. You did the bonus with Palumbo, right? Yeah, we did the bonus with Brad about Libs of TikTok. Jesse also put out his uh, his conversation with Rob Henderson. And we did personals, our most, uh, our most popular event of the year, personal sections. And then I just accidentally- yeah. Oh, God. Some of those are more than 75 words. I don't know why you accept them. I went to the Jesse Live event, so I didn't realize that was, you know, I just blocked it out. Yeah. But the Palumbo, I was, could, I, I just need to tell you this. I have this one piece tell of me. feedback and it was burning. And I looked at the, uh, bl- I looked at the Reddit page to see if anyone else noticed this. At one point- you guys were talking about if breast implants were was like gender reassignment surgery, gender right? Affirming. Yeah. And so <laughs> gender gen, affirming. Sorry, if breast implants were gender affirming, if it's like <laughs> it has anything to do with uh, the other issues of gender we talk about, yeah. And. Palumbo yeah. says, you know, it's not comparing apples to apples, it's comparing apples to oranges. And I just said, no, it's like comparing apples to melon. You totally <laughs> fucked it up, Palumbo. It's because he's gay. It's because he's gay. <laughs> he doesn't know yeah. the melon. Yeah, so so go sign up at bloggedandreported.org if you want to hear that. That was fun. That was a good one. All right, I think that is it for housekeeping, Mike. You've got the wheel. Katie, I'm going to take you on an educational journey, a journey meaning that is educational. School me. <laughs> It it will be educational. It is about education. And for some reason, it's all in California. And I think that reason is that educational ideas out of California are eh, completely fucked up. (laughs) So, So I ask you... You've discussed this, right? Woke kindergarten. What does woke kindergarten mean to you? Yeah, I think we might have discussed this very briefly. So woke kindergarten was a program out of California. The state, or maybe it was a county, I'm forgetting the details, paid someone $250,000 to implement this program called woke kindergarten. 
I think it might have involved like teaching kids about uh, the evils of Chick-fil-A, how snap, <laughs> that was also probably on the curriculum. So Glassbrook Elementary School is one of the elementary schools in the Hayward District, the Hayward USD. Glassbrook serves an almost entirely Latinx population. It's in Northern California, Alameda County. They did, you're right, they paid a quarter of a million dollars to an educator, a YouTuber, a poet, a social critic, <laughs> <laughs> Key Gross, um, I'm going to uh, share with you, I think if you could open this document, here are some of the materials that the children who are experiencing woke kindergarten would have been subject to, no, greeted with. Okay. So this part is called, So You Made It to a Protest, A Sensory Guide for Kids. (laughs) And under the part of what you might hear, could you describe, you could uh, read some of the things you might hear and then describe the picture you see. Okay. So it's uh, it's like, it looks like a meme, but I guess this is, I don't know, part of the curriculum. What you might hear, and then it says chanting, chanting, singing, crying, yelling, laughter, language, shouting, bullhorns, instruments, calls to action, sirens, winds, raindrop, silence. Isn't silence violence? And and what is the main graphic? (laughs) What are we looking at? Uh, The main graphic is a, it looks like a child who has been tear gas correct is that what it is yes a a bipoc child who has been tear gas yes that is correct being comforted by i think her dad uh milk in the eyes that's very welcoming to kindergartners <laughs> there is of course in that section uh next what you might hear the sound of tear gas coming from a from a cop. that's right that's right five-year-old uh next image of course you might see this and what is that this is a child holding up some sort of sign it says from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And the graphic on that, it's it's the drawing of it looks like a child from the back. It sort of looks like um like you know those those decals that people used to put on their trucks that was like Calvin pissing on like a Ford logo. Calvin pissing, right? Yeah. It could be a rug rat. It could be Calvin, a sort yes. of uh, yeah, insouciant youngster. And what is this youngster engaged in? What activity? He is hang gliding. Paragliding. A, uh, pa- pa- yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can't. He's holding on to um, both sides of the whatever sort of kite thing, so you can't see that he actually has a semi-automatic uh, weapon in his hands. R- well, yes. Uh, actually, that part's not true. Everything else is. I enjoyed the inclusion of the paraglider because if anyone wanted to do the Rashida Tlaib thing saying that from the river to the sea is aspirational and has nothing to do with the attacks of September 7th, the uh, Calvin slash the Rugrat paragliding, the the paraglider is the flag of uh, the Palestinian cause that would correct you on that. There's another section, Free Palestine, a visual history, Instazine for kids. This is but a small, small section. I do want to take you to a couple other of the pieces of curricula of woke kindergarten. So you see any downside, land minds to this. I ask you, Katie, where's the lie thus far? I mean, you know, so this is kindergartners, right? Kindergartners. Well, it does. It's for an elementary school and the main whistleblower who we'll get to, uh, he teaches third grade. So yeah, even older kids were uh, subject. Sorry. Um, greeted with these yeah. images and less. I mean, I, the the photo of the child who has just been tear gassed, I think is going to terrify them yes. and maybe um, also make them think that children getting tear gassed is a is something you might commonly see at a protest, yes. which I I know that this has that this has happened. Children have been tear gassed at protest, um, but I don't think that is something that commonly happens. Right. So I think that the most of the take on woke kindergarten was uh, delight, derision, um, 
characterizing it as totally ineffective. But some of these images, I think, without being too much of a Cassandra, are potentially harmful to a young audience. My sister teaches elementary school, and I said to her, have you heard of woke kindergarten? And she said, what is that? What right What right wingers, the phrase right. they use to describe, right. you know, progressive learning. And I said, you think it would be, and maybe it is, you know, you think that that could just be the dismissive phrase, but this is- Like a Babylon Bee headline. That's right. That's right. As if- the Ayatollahs in Iran said, we are literally declaring a war on kindergarten. And then Jesse Waters <laughs> would jerk off to the idea, but this is real. This, it's not real. I mean, these ideas aren't real, but this, I, this was the actual branding, the attempt to win hearts and minds. Here are some of the woke wonderings. And I think these were introduced to kindergarten nerds. I'll, I'll tell you what my elementary school, um, educated, educated elementary school, uh, expert sister says about some of these. You want to read some of these woke wonderings that they say used to teach the kindergartners? Yes. So again, these look like memes. I, I assume that this was like, <laughs> they made them all sit in a circle on a rug and like watch a PowerPoint. All right. One of them says, I wonder if we challenge the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, how might we transfer power back to the people? Another, I wonder if we abolish the police, what else could we do to keep people in the world safe? <laughs> Do she, have kindergartners learn about about uh, the tiers of government by this point? Do they know what the Supreme Court is? My sister, uh, they don't. My sister looks at that slide and said, "Okay, for a kindergartner, and I don't know, maybe this was introduced to second graders, but of the words in that phrase, if we challenge, challenge the good word for kindergartners, gardeners, the legitimacy." Is it? Yes, challenge. You can they say, can read that? They can't read it, but they can understand the word challenge. You could talk okay. to them. What does challenge right. mean? What does it mean to right. have a challenge? The legitimacy, not a word for kindergartners, no. of the Supreme Court, not a concept no. for kindergartners. How might we transfer power back to the people? No, no, A no. meaningless phrase <laughs> that you shouldn't try to get into for kindergartners, meaningless phrase for us adults. The second one I thought was really interesting. She made a point. If we abolish the police, what else could we do to keep people in the world safe? Now, my sister says, if you want to... Uh, introduce this concept in an age-appropriate way, you would say, you wouldn't use the word abolished, but you would say, what happened if there were no police? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it's a leaning, leading question. Right. And if you want to engage, and here's an important word, critical, if you want to engage in critical thought, that's the way to do it. What would happen? And then you foster children coming to their own conclusions. But that is not the point. The point of this is not actual critical thought. It's critical theory, mm -hmm. which I think purposefully tries to fool the listener who's not steeped in it, that it means something like critical thought, but it doesn't. It means recognizing that we live in an oppressive society and we need to overturn those who have power. It's indoctrination. And this the fact that these concepts are so obviously to advance for kindergartners, this kind of reminds me of the same curriculum, not well, kindergarten, but other curricula that introduce concept of gender identity to children, which I think is actually damaging because it confuses them because kindergartners are excuse me, no disrespect to them, fucking stupid. And if you tell them things like, you know, you can be a boy or a girl, they're going to take that literally. And I think this this actually it can't, these sort of things, introducing concepts before they are ready for it can actually be damaging to, yeah. to kids. Yeah, it's confusing. It's not age appropriate. Confusing, right. Um, it's, it's misusing the time that you have where you really need totally. to educate these kids who need to learn to read. But I think even beyond uh, the gender discussion, which maybe that exact phrase can be 
introduced to older kids. Many of the phrases here, many of the causes here do not make sense and would not make sense if you were to introduce them to adults. And in fact, the entire idea of adults came under fire. Think about how destabilizing this would be to a child when the curriculum advocates, quote, our conversation centers on combating adultism (laughs) or the power adults have over children and the discrimination of young people. This is like a parent's worst nightmare. I can imagine a kid coming home and being like, I'm not listening to you anymore. This is adultism. I will (laughs) not clean my room. I will not go to bed. Well, if they knew about it. I'm taking the power back for the young people. (laughs) If they knew about it, I think they would say that, but we'll get to uh, the fact that they didn't really. The creator of the program, Key Gross, who was elected as the Early Childhood Education Assembly's 2020 Social Justice Award recipient and has participated as a speaker, panelist, and moderator for whatever. She was a former kindergarten teacher, and she's someone who goes online and makes poems. I'll play you one of her poems. Climate Injustice by Key, Woke Kindergarten. What paints the sky red? Who colors the oceans black? What dyes the grass brown? Who makes the air opaque? Where do the animals go? When the trees burn. What will the people do when they can't drink? What will the farmers share when they can't plant? How will the kids talk if their lungs sink? And how will they learn if they can't? think. Okay. I am, first of all, struck by the word opaque. Is that a word? I mean, I am notoriously horrible (laughs) at pronouncing words, but I don't think that is one. I think she means, at first I thought she was implicating uh, the oil cartel, OPEC, because there's an environmental concern. (laughs) Well, she answered her own question. (laughs) I think she means opaque. And tell me about some of the visuals you're seeing. How do you think a child would greet them? Yeah, these are, these are kind of, it's like, it's like scary clip art. Yeah. Visuals of children with oxygen tanks strapped to them, uh, water bottles labeled poison. Wildfire. But this was when this was out there and she has many videos like this and some many kind videos where she talks as a kindergarten teacher, a former kindergarten teacher would. But as uh, times got tougher, her politics gained more clarity and lost some of the opaquity, I guess you could say. (laughs) (laughs) And so she put out uh, this video in recent days. And I am 100% Ten toes down, anti-Israel. I believe Israel has no right to exist. I believe the United States has no right to exist. I believe every settler colony who has committed genocide against native peoples, against indigenous people, has no right to exist. I believe in a free Palestine. From the river to the sea. Y'all are the demons. Y'all are the villains. We've been trying to end y'all. Get free of y'all. People will be shocked to, to hear that she's wearing a keffiyeh. <laughs> she's got the, got the whole uniform. So let's say this. Uh, I pose this to you. You're a school administrator and put your head in the space of a school administrator who generally supports these ideas and maybe the best version, if you didn't read the curriculum, of reaching kids. You want this to succeed, but then this happens or this comes out as something that the um, – the person running the program who you paid $250,000 to, this is what she's putting out there in the world. What do you do? I fire her. <laughs> well, she's, she's I, a consultant, but you get rid of the, okay. you cancel the contract, you're saying. Yeah, I, uh, I write a letter to the, all of the parents in the district, maybe have it translated into Spanish. She said there are lots of uh, Latinxes. Actually, Latinxes, I think they mostly only speak English. Um, 
I uh, I apologize for wasting taxpayer dollars. I say that the process there was a breakdown in the process of choosing this particular um, consultant, and I will do better. That's good. You could run my school district. <laughs> Fuck Prager, you blocked and reported you. You should do this. Well, that's not what they did. What? They did was they just hoped the press didn't find out. But guess what? <laughs> the press found out. And I want to give ma- major credit to the San Francisco Chronicle, which has become a much better publication. Jill Tucker has reported on, yeah, she's reported on some thorny, and I say that advisedly because she reported on the use of cotton in an elementary school a couple of years ago. But they reported on this, they exposed this. There was a whistleblower within the school, a teacher named Tiger Craven Neely, the one person in this whole story with a little bit of bravery, literally not Craven. The headline this Bay Area school district spent $250,000 on woke kindergarten program. Test scores fell even further. Tiger Craven Neely, third grade teacher, White described gay moderate, said he wasn't trying to be difficult when asking for clarification about what the program was teaching, which was, quote, disrupting whiteness. He would ask, what does that mean? He said, adding that such questions got him at least temporarily banned from future training sessions. I just want to know, what does it mean for a third grade teacher, uh, for a third grade classroom? Another Glassbrook teacher said woke kindergarten offered one perspective on issues and that there was no tolerance for questions. It slowly became apparent that if you were a dissenting voice, that is not what they wanted to hear, said the teacher, who requested anonymity for fear of pushback at the school. Okay, so the so the so the teachers went to these training sessions led by Key. I don't think I don't I have no evidence that Key even Key Gross even stepped inside the school. I really? think she just was a vendor who provided the service and anyone okay. could have bought the service and it, somehow people were trained. I'm not sure of that. That's not been reported. Gotcha. But yeah. They were there were these training sessions. I think smart, dedicated, lifelong teacher says, but these words have no meaning. And could you just give me clarification about what really we mean by this? The smartest person involved in all this was the teacher who requested anonymity out of fear for pushback. Because Tiger Craven Neely got pushback. In fact, he was suspended. He calls it it's like a bitter paid vacation on taxpayer dollars. And he adds, they're totally not taking the students into consideration. Mm -hmm. The big problem with woke kindergarten, according to the district, Hayward, was that anyone was criticizing woke kindergarten. They stand by the goals of woke kindergarten. They will tell you it was somewhat successful by certain metrics. They also got wrong how well their school was performing. They talked to the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'll read a passage from Jill Tucker's coverage. District officials defended the program this week, saying that woke kindergarten did what it was hired to do. The district pointed to improvements in attendance and suspension rates, and that the school was no longer on the state watch list, only to learn from the Chronicle that the school was not only still on the list, but also had dropped to a lower level. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I do want to talk about the idea that grades dropped. It's true that grades dropped, but there are, it's a small elementary school. I looked up the actual statistics, 60 kids in each grade, they were at a below 20% proficiency rate to begin with. So when you go from 16% to 12%, that is a drop. No one improved, but we're literally talking about two more kids essentially failing the test. But the thing is, 
two more kids did fail the test, right? Mm -hmm. And what Woke Kindergarten was trying to put forward wasn't just helping anyone. It was full of nonsense, just nonsense. And so I would look at the fact that the grades were falling as the coup de grace. There's so little justification when an outsider looks at this and then says, and it didn't even raise test scores. I mean, maybe it's not totally fair given the small sample size, but I think it's fair enough to say this program had no merit. Yeah. And so these these scores are already abysmal in the first place, less than 20% proficiency. The fact that they would use any teacher time or any student time wasting it on this indoctrination, I mean, it probably, the indoctrination problem, my guess is that that didn't work either, that these students probably did not turn into little revolutionaries. (laughs) Probably not, considering that the language they were foisting upon them were things outside their ken. It might have made like one student scared to go to a fucking protest because (laughs) he or she is afraid they're going to get pepper sprayed. Right. And they did say, well, suspension rates lowered, which seems totally uncorrelated to an idea of objecting to adultism. Anyway, <laughs> I don't see I don't see how one follows the other, but there is a right. wrinkle or um, a, an aspect of this that hasn't been widely reported. So, how do we know about woke kindergarten? Mostly, it's because Tiger Craven Neely, the brave Tiger Craven Neely, stood up. His name being a con- a contradiction. Craven meaning cowardly. Tiger, mm-hmm. the embodiment of bravery. He stood up, he said something, a couple other people at the school. But there was also one member of the Board of Education who pushed the issue. They call them trustees in Hayward. And this guy, Joe Ramos, is extremely problematic. <laughs> Ooh. So I will read to you from further San Francisco Chronicle coverage. Board member Joe Ramos was questioning the district's contract with the anti-racism program called woke kindergarten, saying he was alarmed at the expense before he directed comments to a senior administrator. I'm going to say before you hear these comments, they weren't great. Some of the parents here should take a rope and string you up. Uh Ramos said said to Sandra Escobedo, (laughs) supplier of supplemental and concentration (laughs) services. And then the article says, Ramos and Escobedo are both Hispanic. Why does it say that, do you think? But are they white Hispanic? I I think they might be because at some point Ramos said you're being anti-white um, but I, do you think they said that just in case anyone thought that a uh, threat was being leveled against a black person? Is that yes. why it's in there? I would, I would suspect okay. that, yes. Okay, right. It wasn't like, uh, and he threatened to punch someone in the face, him being a Gemini <laughs> and she being a Leo. Okay, I understand. So Ramos apologizes. He literally, uh, it's all on tape. He apologizes within 40, 45 seconds of saying the thing. Um, someone at the meeting says, we don't say that. He's like, you're right, you're right. I apologize. I was just trying to mm-hmm. make a point. But everyone on the board, everyone in the administration, I think everyone in the school district goes nuts. They already seem to loathe the guy. He is a conservative. He is rough around the edges. He always talks about his conservative Christianity. This is a community that begins each meeting with a land acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. This is a community that sponsored Trayvon Martin Day during Black History Month, where students and staff wore hoodies. Did he dress like George Zimmerman on Trayvon Martin Day? (laughs) No. He dresses a little like, I don't want to be, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. He has a little Sheriff Joe Arpaio vibe. Interesting. As I I consider them. He has called members of the LGBT LGBTQ plus community groomers. Uh, Uh Uh-huh. At the next meeting after this rope comment, 
which was the next meeting was the rope comment was made in late January, next meeting February 14th. All four other trustees vote to censure Joe Ramos. The local NAACP chapter head said that his rope comment invokes memories of a time that black Americans were lynched for fighting for educational equity. A student member of the board, a guy, a kid named Kamari Lewis, wasn't at that censure vote, but he explained to them over, uh, he explained to them remotely why he couldn't show up out of fear for his personal safety. I am not safe in that space. So I'm kind of on the same boat with the district staff. They aren't safe. Nobody nobody in that room is safe and i don't feel safe because at this where we are right now it kind of it's kind of like a ticking time bomb we don't know what's going to happen we don't know what's going to be said and me personally i would hate to be the next victim of whatever is going to be said this guy sounds traumatized and i shouldn't laugh at him but the next victim of what is going to be said, he's not, he doesn't seem genuinely afraid that anybody is going to string anybody up, correct? No, I don't think so. I think that further words might, you know, traumatize him or put him in fear. And to be quite clear, uh, if I was on the board and they said, what do you do about a board member who said that? I take into account his total past action. I'd probably take the politics of it into account, which they did. But I wouldn't be against a censure vote, I don't think. Sure. You're right. A censure vote says what you said was wrong and we're educators and we don't do that. Right. They can't fire him. It's an elected position. Presumably they can't fire him. That's right. And that's very important. And so you would imagine they did that. It was a little bit of an ugly incident, but they moved on. Right. The next issue, the board announced results of the investigation that they commissioned by a lawyer or a law firm. The investigator found out that a reasonable person would find those re remarks, the um, string them up remarks, quote, humiliating, intimidating, offensive or threatening in violation of school policy. So they vote to strip Ramos of all committees, deny him access to school facilities, disallow his contact with students. Uh, so this is essentially the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, proposed solution for space lasers or off all the committees. A board member, one of the board members who voted to censure him, asks, so if he shows up on school grounds, can we have him arrested? And the, a school official says, no, you can't have him arrested. He's actually an elected official. He has a right, as do his constituents, have a right to his service on the board. Ramos, the whole time is all these votes and really hours are taken up by this, but Ramos is trying to talk about woke kindergarten much of the time, but he's not proficient in Robert's rules of order. He doesn't know when to bring it up and when not to. Everyone there is far more sophisticated. They all disagree with him. They disagree with each, each other, I found out. And it's a little bit of a hornet's nest, a hornet's nest of vituperativeness. But um, he's mostly not allowed to bring up his objections to what started this all, which, which, which is his anger at how the parents aren't being informed of what's happening with the expense and product of woke kindergarten. Finally, I will bring you just a short clip of what his actual critique is. You guys are screwing with the Latino community. And what's going to happen is this. I'm just going to let them know more and more. 
because you guys allow this program in here so they could, and you let them loose on some Spanish speaking kids on Latinos because you don't care. And you talk about racism. You guys are the racist. The program tells you it's to disrupt whiteness. The, the people who you hired, they don't like white people. They don't like white teachers, white parents, white children. It's not what I'm saying. It's in the literature. It's right here. Go look it up yourself. You hired a bunch of racist socialists. And why did you do this? I don't know. And the scores went down. These seem like valid concerns. They do. But the board doesn't have to hear them anymore because they literally silenced their biggest critic. Now, to be very fair, he is rude. He did make the rope comment. He breaks the rules. He pisses everyone off by doing things like reviewing every line item of the budget with the superintendent. And this doesn't seem this doesn't seem like some sort of um, tactic to gum up the works. He really just wants to understand why every single dollar is spent. But everyone else on the board says there are other times to do this other than the meeting, the meetings. They hate his comportment. They dislike the points he makes. They rightly get upset by this one comment. I do think that he's genuinely confused by the jargon that they're steeped in. He asks questions like, well, what do you mean by restorative justice? He asks it pretty confrontationally. Sometimes they indulge him in the explanations. Sometimes they're just upset by the explanations. Sometimes they censure him and disallow him from going into school facilities. Now, I do ask you again, since you've established your credentials (laughs) as a great educational expert, we've seen the Loudoun County School Board descend into chaos. On the one hand, parents are upset. On the other hand, sometimes these things get so out of control, it's really shameful, and the purpose of educating children can't be allowed to happen. What do you do in a situation with a guy like this? What would you do? Well, I mean, you would think that a group full of people involved in the education system would know how to control a room. You know, they need like one really scary kindergarten teacher up there to call time (laughs) on people. His, his, maybe I'm saying that maybe I'm more sympathetic to him because I think he's right when it comes to this curriculum. But I find it very interesting that the school board is focusing on his uh, certainly um, offensive and problematic statement that he immediately apologized for rather than this sham of a program that costs taxpayers $250,000 and doesn't lead to positive outcomes. And I think he's absolutely right. When he talks about this program in particular, harming Latino students, it, there is something very ironic about this attempt to be anti-racist that is going to have that has a directly negative effect, effect on the students of color who attend those schools. Right. I agree. Because what the school board wants to do is point to Joe Ramos and say, this guy's wrong. This guy's rude. This guy's out of line. This guy's the problem. And they put him in timeout. That everyone can agree on. And I've listened to hours of these school board meetings and everyone does agree with it, I think. I think maybe a lot of the parents and, t- and students who aren't showing up and don't have the time or wherewithal to show up these meetings actually agree with Joe, Ram- uh, Joe Ramos, who, as I said, got the most votes of anyone who's on the school board. But also an important point point is the Hayward School District really does believe in the intellectual underpinnings of woke kindergarten. They were embarrassed by how much it didn't work. But to quote Mm -hmm. from Superintendent Jason Ryman, at the core, and this is his letter saying we've suspended the program, but at the core of woke kindergarten's approach are abolitionist teachings, restorative practices, and student and family engagement. Abolitionist teaching seeks to remove barriers that impede student success, particularly among students of color. Who could object to that? Well, no one if they don't know what 
abolitionist teaching is. Right. It is a very activist approach. It is a explicitly, well, maybe implicitly, but if you scratch a little bit, Marxist approach. He was derided for claiming that socialism is a play. It actually is. I don't have a tinfoil hat. But this is a worldview that I actually think most of the Latino parents, if they really knew what was going on, would not agree with a rope comment, but would more agree with Ramos than many of the other people on the board. Particularly the ones that uh, fled from from communist countries or socialist countries might might object to this. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, and I'm not an educator or a parent, despite my expertise on both issues, that a uh, the best thing that a school can do for students, especially low-income students, is teach them to read, make them very, very proficient readers and communicators. This does none of that. And they're, and they're clearly, like, their, sh- their scores show that they are struggling to do that very basic task. And I mean, I don't know, Mike, I mean, you're a parent. How would you feel if you found out, what would you do if you found out that this sort of curriculum was being taught in your kid's school? Well, this sort of curriculum is being taught in my kid's school. Yeah, you live in in Brooklyn. Yeah, and you know, my kids go to good schools and they can read. So when you have, I do think when you're meeting the minimum requirements of education, you get a little bit of leeway or a parent can shrug and put up with a bit of nonsense, a bit of ideological nonsense. But when you're talking about people uh, and the educational system is spitting them out without even the fundamental tools to survive in our society, and what you've spent your time emphasizing was the opacity of of paragliders, it really is frustrating and maddening. I will quote from – so what's going on is we're talking about uh, 90% of the kids, about 90% of the kids – are Latino. They have pretty bad um, attendance records. It's funny. There are like seven Asian kids in the school, and they have perfect attendance, but they have pretty, they're pretty bad. <laughs> Those attendance goddamn records. model minorities. I know, right? It's just such a, it's such a um, horrible it's such a myth. stereotype, <laughs> such a pernicious stereotype. Um, it's very hard. It's not so easy to say. Well, just teach and read. That's a hard thing. And For sure. the chronicle, the chronicle quotes a bilingual kindergarten teacher is saying, if we just focus on academics, it's not working. There is no one magic pill that will raise test scores. True, but I don't think that cyanide is going to help things either. (laughs) But it really is an ideological project to engage in indoctrination, some form of indoctrination. In California, all of the public high schools will teach ethnic studies, which sounds good, I guess. I'd like to know if I was Hispanic or Latino, or even though I'm not, I'd like to know about their very important history in the state. But as described, I'm going to use Hayward's own description of how they're going to teach ethnic studies. Students will study forms of oppression and power, including imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, hegemony, privilege, dominance, whiteness, and Eurocentrism. The entire California curriculum on ethnic studies was vetoed last year because Gavin Newsom said that it was insufficiently balanced and inclusive. And then what happened was a lot of other ethnic groups like Jews, Arabs, Sikhs, Armenian Americans and said, what about us? What about us? We're also oppressed. So they carved out some parts of the curriculum that would address those concerns. But right now, I mean, I'll quote from the New York Times about this ethnic studies curriculum. 
While the name ethnic studies might bring to mind a broad exploration of how ethnicity and race shape the human experience, the discipline as taught in universities is narrower and more ideological. In reworking ethnic studies for high school, California came up with a 700-page model curriculum that captures much of the discipline's leftist activist spirit. So what I'm saying is, this is not a one-off. This is not an isolated incident. This is not the exception that gives Jesse Waters fodder or blocked and reported fodder. This describes maybe woke kindergarten wasn't uh, self-reflective enough to hide the ball and not label itself woke, right? Maybe if they used a, any other word besides woke, this wouldn't have caused quite a kerfuffle. But this idea is baked into the educational process in California and a lot of other states. The California colleges not only don't require the SAT, they don't use the SAT. And we're finding out more and more that the SAT, to quote a great intellect, the SAT is about the best single tool we have for predicting a high school student's future college performance. That was said by a uh, J single Never in a substack. You know, this reminds me of a few years ago. So I worked on a, a series for The Stranger um, before COVID about Seattle's attempts to to basically deal with the fact that there was this huge this huge optics problem, which was that in the accelerated program. So you would walk through these schools and classrooms would be divided if you just looked at them basically based on race because you had these accelerated classes that were almost entirely Asian and white. And then in the regular classes and in the remedial classes, you had students who were almost entirely black and Hispanic. This obviously looks very bad, right? Especially because it's a, it's a, not just the scores, but if you're walking through a classroom, it just looks like, it looks like de facto segregation. And the school district's solution to fix this problem was to dismantle the gifted programs, essentially. And so I interviewed a bunch of students, a bunch of parents about this. And the parents who were the most concerned about this and, the, and whose kids were going to be the most harmed by this were low-income parents who happened to have, many of them immigrants, who happened to have very bright students. Because, and this sort of broke down by race as well, the ones who could afford it, they would take their kids out and they would put them in private schools or they would get them extra tutors so they could get accelerated learning that way. And so the kids who are most likely to be harmed by this were the, the, the bright but low-income children. And this is an equity issue, but they use this sort of very blunt instrument to solve the problem, but actually had the effect of, of, of recreating white flight when white parents would take their kids out of these schools, the ones who could afford it, and put them in private schools. Katie, when New York was considering, or some faction in New York was considering dismantling the gifted program for these very reasons, I would say, no, haven't you been reading what they're doing in Seattle? I did not realize until now what I was citing was your coverage of okay. this issue. <laughs> out of Seattle. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. It is true. White kids and Asian kids, very complicatedly for right. um, some of the forces opposed to standardized tests and gifted programs, do better. They do better on the SAT than black kids and Hispanic kids. It's unfair, the economic benefit on a standardized test. But you know where else the economic benefit shows up? Everywhere else. It shows up with GPA. It shows up with extracurricular. Yeah, you could game essays and GPA way easier than you can game the SAT. That's right. It is the best, which is to say, 
not even not perfect, but it does skew towards the unfairly rewarding the rich, but it is the best rubric that college admissions officers have. And they're not stupid. They know that we're not just going to blindly go with the SATs, but I've talked to many admission officers who want to use the SATs to help and identify those kids from impoverished backgrounds or at least challenging backgrounds where I talked to a Georgetown admission officer who said, if you don't have the SATs and Georgetown always required it, you just say, well, this kid from um, a poor New York City high school seems okay, but I can't really be sure they'll be able to come in here and hang with the other kids. But if that kid even has an okay score on the SAT, 1260, then I could say, yes, I'm going to take a chance on admitting that kid. But without any SATs, you just don't take the chance. It, it, it really does seem to be more about optics than the actual outcomes here. And so I'm glad to see that some universities have re- reverted to, they've actually looked at the data and they're re- reverting back to using the SAT. Yeah. Dartmouth said we're using it again. Yale said we're using again. There's the whole sea change. I think David Leonhardt wrote a really influential uh, column in the New York Times. He was chronicling what was going on, but I think that gave a big permission structure to all these elite institutions saying, well, the New York Times is now reendorsing it. They're not afraid to... the. The facts and the studies were always out there. There was just a huge reluctance to wade in and say, yeah, I I know that black kids do much poorer in the SATs than white kids, but that's not the end of the discussion. Now, at least we could have a little more robust, sincere discussion. All right, Mike. Well, thank you so much for this. I um, learned more than I think I ever wanted to know about woke kindergarten. Uh, Now, next time I go protest Chick-fil-A, I'll know what to expect. I'm... Glad that you're no longer shrouded in apocosity. <laughs> All right, Mike, where can people find you? I would say listen to The Gist, wherever better or mediocre podcasts are served. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. One more thing before we go. After we recorded this conversation, our fact checker, Jesse, informed us that woke kindergarten creator, Akia Gross, goes by the pronouns they, them, not she, her, which we both repeatedly used in the episode. Now, Mike would probably have been willing to re-record this entire episode in order to fix that error, but I was not. So apologies to Key. This has been Blocked and Reported. Our show is produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains and Jessica, the 80s baby. I'm Katie Herzog, and I will be back next week with a new guest host. <laughs>